Robert, how are you this morning? Hi, I'm really well, thank you. Yes, I'm really good. It's Friday, so Friday sun's out, so I cannot complain. Thank you so much for having me. You are very welcome. So just as a bit of context for everyone, I became aware of Robert's book through the Tandem Independent Publishers Showcase. So Robert, I have a lot of listeners who are keen, want to be authors and trying to get published. How did you go about finding an independent publisher um, to publish your work? Um. You know, it's great that there are lots of authors out there, but I would say, please stop writing. It makes it harder for the rest of us. Um, <laughs> I mean, sort of the the publishing process, I didn't realise this until I started actually trying to get published, that actually writing a book is the easy part of it. Um, I hope no one would be discouraged by that. Um, but writing a book is the easy part and the fun part of it. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, in terms of finding publishers, I mean, it's just... It's kind of the similar way that we do everything in 2023 now, which is just to Google it. Um, everything I learned about sort of getting published, um, so obviously this is my second book, so everything I sort of learned, I learned when I was going through it for my first one. And it's just a lot of Googling and a lot of reading articles and reading lists because, you know, there are various ways to go about getting published. You can approach agencies, you can approach some of the larger publishing houses will let you approach them directly a lot of them are agent only but a lot will let you approach directly all the independent ones do and it's just a case of of finding sort of a an agency or a publisher that's that's right for you and right for your book you know it would have been no good for me to start approaching publishers who do entirely horror or entirely thrillers because my book is neither a horror or a thriller so it would have been a waste of my time and their time so I mean, I found that when I started trying to get published, it just, it's so much research involved and so much reading that, yeah, I mean, that's <clears throat> that's the best way to go about it. Like, so the same way we do everything, just Google and then read the articles that appear. Uh, <clears throat> that's, okay, interesting advice there. So if you could just talk us through a bit of how your timeline looked. So when did you start, or for your first book or for your, for your current books? What? How long did it take you from when you first started writing to finishing your draft to getting published? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll go for this one because the first one was five years ago and I have a terrible memory. So um, so this book, Belonging, my second book, I started writing it in July of 2021. Um, you know, we were deeply, deeply in lockdown and I'm one of those people that's been conditioned to, if I'm sitting around doing nothing, I start to panic that I'm wasting my time. So I thought, ah, oh, I'll write a book, why not? Um, so when it comes to my writing style, I am a frantic writer. I just sit and I just go nuts on a keyboard. So actually, belonging, it's about 90,000 words, I think. It only took me about 10 days to write. Um, really? 10 I mean, like days? Say, yeah, I mean, like I say, we were deep in lockdown and I wasn't working at the time. So, I, you know, we're talking sort of 9, 10, 11 hours a day in front of a keyboard, but... Yeah, um, as Vonnegut said, there are two types of writers. There are swoopers and there are bashers. Um, and I'm a swooper, which is in that when I write a first draft, I just sit and I just write it. And I don't plan a great deal. I just see what comes out. Um, and then once that's done, then I just kind of leave it for a little while. Then maybe a couple of weeks, a month later, I'll go back and, and start to edit it. And that's when it you know, that's when I really am looking at every word and every comma and every sentence and really sort of honing and perfecting it so so that probably takes sort of two three months from there um and then 
what I did was I engaged a beta reader as well, um, which I find is a service that's invaluable. Um, so for listeners that don't know, a beta reader is basically someone who just will read a book, will read a manuscript before anyone else has had to read it and just feedback on on things on it, you know, like the, the readability, any plot holes, the language, that kind of thing. Um, and what I found really useful was the beta read of this. I somehow managed to write um, one Christmas twice. I'd um, I'd written Christmas Eve, Christmas yes. Day, the bit, the bit between, and then New Year's Eve. And then for some reason, I just then jumped back to Christmas Eve and just written the whole thing again, but with completely different scenes taking place. Oh, <clears> I <throat> remember reading that in the, it's in the acknowledgements, isn't it? About the two, I remember reading that and thinking that's a bit of a weird one, but you know, people write Absolutely. all kinds of things in acknowledgements. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, sort of beta readers and editors are the, the unsung hero of the publishing process because, you know, I tend to go through manuscripts and edit it five or six times before I, I feel like I'm happy with it to start submitting it. And But the problem is by sort of the fifth or sixth time, you know, not only do I know what the novel's about because I've written it, but then when you've read it so many times as well, at a certain point you stop reading it because you're just looking at the words on the page and you know what they're going to say. So like I said, I've managed to glance over this repeated Christmas so many times before it was pointed out. Um, so yeah, so then once, you know, got it written, had a beta read, got it edited, ready to send it out. Then it's just a case, like I say, of just, this is where you have to prepare yourself for rejection and just start sending it out to everyone and anyone. Um, like I say, so, you know, researching relevant publishers, relevant agents and things. Um, I like to look at a lot of independent publishers because people sort of scorn independent publishers a lot of the time, thinking, you know, you want to go for one of the big four, you know, everyone wants to be published by sort of Picador and Simon and Schuster or someone, but, you know, that's, it's, it's kind of like everyone who plays football wants to play for Real Madrid or Barcelona. Not many people are going to get to. Um, <clears throat> whereas actually a lot of people scorn indie publishers because they think, oh, they're only small, you know, there might only be a one or two person band, but Really, they have massive reach, and you know, there's so <clears throat> publishing's like it's going the direction of a lot of things at the moment, where we're sort of moving away from the big conglomerates that are, you know, not necessarily the most socially responsible business in the world, and going towards indies because, you know, like I said, there are so many indies out there that have such good reach and are publishing such amazing books that are, that are being overlooked in a lot of mainstream uh, media and presses and stuff that. You know, you know, we really need to support our indie publishers. Um, so yeah, so I went through so many submissions. I reckon I probably got about two hundred rejections for this book, and just the one acceptance. But ultimately, the one acceptance is all you need. You know, um, so that was from SRL, who have been absolutely brilliant for this. So, so I signed the contract to publish this in May of last year, May of twenty twenty two. So it's actually only ten months from. You know, I say first, putting pen to paper from, you know, typing that first word out on the laptop to actually signing the contract was 10 months. <clears throat> That's so interesting because I've had, I asked a lot of guests on here about their timeline. And it does seem that publishing moves at a glacial pace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I say it's 10 months from first writing to getting signed. That's actually quite quick. But then from signing the contract to actually being published was another year. So that's a year of sort of edits from the publisher, cover designs, all of that. Um, so, yeah, it can move at a glacial pace, but publishing in a lot of ways is like actually writing itself, where 
you know, some people will say, how long does it take to write a book? And to write a book, it takes the amount of time it needs to take, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, completely um, makes sense, yeah. You know it yourself when it's done. Exactly, you know, you know when, like say, I'd been, I'd had a beta reader read belonging, I'd been through five or six edits, and then I know it's ready to start submitting. And it's the same for the publishing process, you know. It takes time for them to edit it, um, you know, them to design the cover, to start the the marketing for it. And it's sort of books are published when they're ready to be published, which I think it's it can be frustrating that it goes so slowly because, you know, I've written this book and I want to get out there in the world. But then actually, it's one of those things where I'd rather it takes two years and it's right than do it in five months and and the book's not it's the best version of itself because then it's it's doing a disservice to me as an author it's doing a disservice to a publisher and it's doing a disservice to readers because you know you want your readers to be reading the best version of your book possible and if you rush out the door it's not going to be that best version unfortunately that's so interesting I mean I could listen to you talk about this for hours but we do have (laughs) other things you want to talk about so just last question about you before we go on to your uh, book choices and I may be kind of preempting one of your book choices um so please stop me if I am doing that and we can move on to that uh but on the the back of your book um uh your kind of uh compared to Brett Easton Ellis what do you think about that comparison um when I got that comparison back I basically was like cool I'm done that's all I ever wanted yeah I've completed it now I've completed writing Exactly, yeah, because like British Nellis is, you know, my probably my all-time favourite author. Well, certainly top three, you know, he's a, a hero of mine to some extent. I'm sitting here in my study looking at a signed poster of Glamorama that I've got hanging on the wall, which my wife absolutely hates because it's huge, <laughs> but but I love it. Yeah, I mean, they say that phrase was just it was the ultimate for me. You know, I've read all of his books so many times. I'm one of those where he's written eight books and I've got like 17 books on a shelf so I've got multiple copies of each of them. You know, I've... Yeah, I know, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, it was just glorious. Absolutely glorious. So thanks, Sean, for that. Really appreciate it. <laughs> yes, shout out to Sean. So moving on to your uh, book choices, please tell us about the first book you've chosen and why you've chosen it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So the first book I've chosen is The Grapes of Wrath. Now, anyone who follows me on social media or has seen me speaking at an event in the past couple of years or has just had a conversation with me at all will be sick of hearing me talk about this. But So I have been a fan of Steinbeck since, well, since I was part of my family in year nine. That's when I sort of really decided I want to be a writer. You know, it's one of those sort of cliched writer origin stories where I had this amazing teacher in year nine called Mr. Eves who taught us of mice and men and I love that book it's one of the few books from school that I've read multiple times since for pleasure and that that's... kind of turned me on to John Steinbeck yeah so and... I, I never had to do Steinbeck in school so the only one of his I've ever read is The Pearl it's one of my dad's favorites oh, oh that's a great I mean I, I recommend it I'm currently working my way through his backlog and they're just all brilliant um I could bang on about Steinbeck for hours but <laughs> so the Grapes of Wrath, it was one of those where, you know, I'd, I'd heard about, everyone's heard of the Grapes of Wrath. Um, you know, it was one of the contributors to him winning the Pulitzer when he was alive. It was one of those I'd heard about, and I was like, oh, fine, I'll read it just to get everyone off my back. And it was just incredible. It was one of those, but you know, when you, you read a book that's, that's really hyped up, and after about five pages, you're like, yeah, I get it. I immediately believe the hype. Yes, um, I know exactly what you mean. You're like, when you're, when you're starting a book, and you're like, 
you're in that gray area of is this going to be what I expect it to be or is this overhyped? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, so straight away I knew it was going to be. And, and it, it's a tough read, you know, it's about, it's basically about capitalism destroying people's lives and how poverty really just screws everyone over. But what, you know, to me it had sort of two main messages. And one, like, so one is the sort of anti-capitalist, you know, the banks are not your friends, they will turn you off your land the second you can't keep paying. And then you and your family, they don't care if you and your family can't eat. Um, but the other one, the main theme that stood out to me is that, you know, The Grapes of Wrath is 400 pages about poverty and people trying to eat. But actually what it's about is just be nice to the people around you, you know, your friends, your family. You know, we are all in this together. You know, I've been for years, I was never a Beatles fan, you know. The Beatles sang All We Need Is Love. And for years growing up, I was like, oh, no, we don't. You know, you need food and shelter and warmth. And stuff. <laughs> but actually, once I read The Grips of Wrath, I got it. I'm like, yeah, all you do need is love. Like, you know, as much as I love books, and I probably shouldn't say this on the book podcast, books don't matter. You know, computers don't matter. <laughs> that matter. All that matters is the people we surround ourselves with and how we treat them and how they think about us. That's probably a bit much for heartache. <laughs> no, it's been it's for the benefit of listeners. We're recording this at half past eight in the morning, and honestly, it's uh, it's waking me up for the day. It's you know, getting me in that uh, capitalism death spiral vibe, which is possibly what we're looking for right now. Um, I'm delighted to hear that because you know, the opposite of that is putting you to sleep, which would really not be ideal. <laughs> so, moving on to your second book, please tell us which book you've chosen and why. Um, yeah, so for my second one, I mean, I'm going through all the cliches here. So I've chosen The Catcher in the Rye for this. Oh, I love that book. I'm named after that book. Are you really? Amazing. I mean, yeah. Phoebe is one of the great characters in it as well. She is, um, I would go as far as say she's the best character. Absolutely. I mean, even though she's not the main character, if not for Phoebe, Holden really would not stand a chance. She's like the one grounding influence he has in his life. Um, yeah, exactly. The reason, I, the reason I've chosen this is because... I sort of picked it under the under the selection of the book I remember reading for the first time. Um, and I do. So I, I'm a multi-reader. Like, I read books multiple, multiple times. And, you know, not everyone does it. I know some people who think I'm completely mental for doing that. But I've read Catching the Rye 10, 20 times easily. But this is one I think everyone should read multiple times because it changes when you read it because you've changed when you read it. So... The reason I remember reading it for the first time is because I must have been 14 or 15. And, you know, you hear about this book that's been banned in America and it's it's about this teenager who's just riddled with apathy. And you read it when you're sort of 15 and you're like, oh, my God, Holden Caulfield is the coolest person in the world. You know, he's drinking, he's smoking, he's flirting with nuns while he has his breakfast. Like, he doesn't care. He's so cool. I want to be just like him. And then, you know... Uh, Sort of read it a few times in my teen years, and then I was reading it in my twenties. And and when I, I remember reading it for the first time in my twenties, I mean, like, oh my god, Holden Caulfield is so annoying. He's such a child. Yeah. He thinks he's so cool, calling everyone a phony, but actually he's just a you know, he's a sixteen-year-old kid who thinks he knows everything. Yeah, uh, exactly. I could, yeah, that's that's how I felt when I first read it. I was like, he's so whiny and annoying. Yeah. Absolutely. But then, um, you know, then I've thought, of, so I'm in my 30s now and I've read it a few times in my 30s. And now when I read it, I'm like, oh, my God, he just needs someone to put an arm around him and tell him it's going to be OK. You know, 
he he's this you know, yeah he's he's filled with teenage angst he's you know he's hiring prostitutes in a hotel and getting beaten up by the pimp when he refuses to pay and you know all of this he's crashing on his old teacher you know he's breaking into his parents apartment in the middle of the night you realize that actually he just needs someone to put an arm around him you know he's his parents are quite distant they sent him off to multiple boarding schools you know his big brother he's obsessed with him you know he's still got his baseball mitt that his brother wrote all over and he just he just needs someone to put an arm around him and say look Holden, it's gonna be okay yeah and yeah so that's one of the things i love about that book is just you know obviously whenever you read a book you know like when I wrote Belonging, you know, I'm I've got themes and ideas that I'm trying to express, and and when you read a book, you pick up on those themes and ideas. Every book you read, you read through the lens of your own experience as well. And I've never yeah. quite read a book by Catch and the Rye that changes so much as you read it at different points of your life. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. Completely know what you mean. So moving on to the third book you've chosen, please tell us which book it is and why you've chosen it. Um, so the first one I mentioned, might have mentioned earlier, it is Glamorama by Brecky Finellis. So for I did wonder years, if I'd be uh, preempting a choice there. Oh, absolutely! Um, not to give too much of a spoiler, but you're preempting two choices. Um, but yeah, so for years and years, Glamorama was my favorite book in the world. Um, so you know, for people who may not, who, for listeners who may not be quite included in, um, Brecky Finellis is most famous for writing American Psycho. Um, but everyone, you know, that's his most known book. But he's actually written eight books. And whilst American Psycho is a brilliant book, to me, Glamorama is my favourite of his. Um, I mean, it's so it's about a it's about a model who's so stupid he's tricked into becoming an international terrorist. You know, he just he's he's placing bombs in museums around the world, completely unaware because he's just that stupid. Um, for those of you who are thinking, wait a minute, that sounds quite a lot like Zoolander. Um, you'd be right, actually. When Zoolander came out, they had to pay Brace and Ellis a large amount of money because they just stole his idea, basically. Um, but yeah, it's just it's so funny because it's it's about this this character Victor Ward, who's a, an aspiring model slash MTV presenter. It's set in the nineties when MTV was still a thing. Okay, um, yeah. So if you're born after uh, nineteen ninety five, <laughs> MTV was a channel that used to be on TV and they play music videos. Yeah, it used to be sort of part of the the sort of cultural zeitgeist. You know, it used to be you would turn on MTV to see what's cool now. You know, what bands are yeah. cool, what music's cool, what and fashion's you go cool. Into you know, the next day, and everyone would have been watching MTV. Exactly, you don't want to be the one who hasn't been watching it, so you're not in the conversations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, so that is Victor Ward. His dream is to become a top international male model and present on MTV, get his own version of Cribs or something. But he's just such a hilarious but tragic character like he you know at times in the book you read it any stupidity you find yourself laughing out loud at it but then other times his stupidity like with Holden Caulfield you find yourself you want to just put an arm around and say look Victor it's fine you know not everyone it, it doesn't matter that you don't understand the French words that people are putting in um, like there's a hilarious scene in it where the book opens with him trying to open a club in New York because he basically just wants all celebrities to gravitate to him and there's something in the, I can't remember exactly what it is in the club, you know, saying, who did this? And one of his assistants says, oh, it was moi. And, you know, obviously you and I know, oh, he's just saying me in French. But then obviously Victor's like, moi, moi, who the hell is moi? Get moi right now. And it's just it's absolutely hilarious to read. Um, 
But one of the things I love about this book is it, it's classic British analysis where it's just, it's hilarious and it's disgusting and it's awful and it's shocking and it will really open your eyes and it'll really teach you a thing or two about the world. I absolutely love it. I'm not sure what that says about me as a person. Well, this is probably the wrong time to make this confession, but I've actually never read any Bright Eastern Ellis. I've seen the American Psycho film with, oh, what's his name? Christian Balin. Christian um, Bale, yeah. Yeah, but I've never read any of his books because, like you said, I always everyone always says they're a bit, it's not like a lighthearted read. It's something like something bad or like gross will happen or something like that. So I've never sat down to read. Yeah, they're not for the faint of heart. I actually am. Um... I I used to just recommend British Nails books to everyone until a few years ago I was doing my master's and I had a really interesting conversation with a lecturer there. Um, we were talking about American Psycho and I was like, oh, I find it hilarious. And she was like, oh, I don't find it funny at all. And I was like, oh, why not? And so she was like, you know. <laughs> why not? <laughs> yeah, she was kind of like, you know, and, and I may sound scornful when I say this, but she was 100% right. She was like, well, they're kind of books about male privilege because... So for like American Psycho, you know, it's about a man who tortures and murders people. Yeah. That's all fine for, for someone like me to read about. But actually, she was saying that for a woman, you know, if you go out on a date, a blind date with a man you've never met, being sort of kidnapped and tortured and murdered after it is a real possibility. Yeah. Like that, that's someone that's like, like me. Yeah. Yeah. Like as a man, like, you know, there's not a zero percent chance I'm going to get murdered, but the chance I'm going to get murdered is pretty small. But for a woman, that chance is massively higher. And when she told that to me, I was like, "Wow, yeah, that's quite eye-opening." Like I say, I've been reading Brain Snow's books through the lens of myself, where they're just hilarious and the violence is completely abstract. But you know, women reading it, they read it through the the lens of this is eminently possible and plausible. Mm. yeah no i yeah i'm sorry i'm with the lecturer on this one but i'm glad you uh, realize the errors of your ways i mean growth is what it is to be human so well done absolutely i am i am always grateful for people like that because i can be a very naive and insular person and you know i'm one of those person where five times a day someone will say something and i'm like oh yeah that's so obvious i can't believe i didn't know that segue from the book choices so you said you did a master's did you do a creative writing master's i didn't i did um contemporary literature which is just a fancy way of saying english literature um no i kind of i don't know why i did english literature not creative writing really i just when i was picking it just attracted me more um and in in many ways in hindsight i kind of wish i'd done creative writing because you know, even though I am a now a twice published author, I'm still learning to be a writer and I'm still learning every day. So so that might have been really potentially really helpful. But you know, I still love doing a literature master's. I I mean in some ways it was good because I picked up a lot of books from a lot of authors that I've not read before. Like I'd never heard of Jonathan Franzen until I had to read um, the corrections as part of my master's and now I've read all of his books. I absolutely love them. So so maybe, you know, maybe in hindsight I should have done creative writing, but you know, not a choice I regret. I still enjoyed the year I did it and I still have a master's degree, so I can't complain really. Yeah, I mean I've never done any um higher education in English or creative writing, so I'm always interested um by people who have done it, because I think it sounds super interesting. Uh but moving on to your fourth book choice, please tell us which book you've chosen and why. <laughs> So for this, I've chosen what is potentially up there as probably my top 
in definitely in my top three all-time favorite books. It is eleven twenty-two sixty-three by Stephen King. Now I won't I won't another, another genius that I've never read. Absolutely, yeah. I was gonna say I won't mansplain Stephen King for your readers, just I feel like if you're if you're listening to a, a podcast about books, you know enough about books to have heard of Stephen King. Um, I, as an aside, totally not showing off. I recently completed my quest of having read every Stephen King book, which I'm quite. Proud That's of. impressive because he's, he's like, very prolific. Yeah, he's written like seventy novels, which is really mm. for us. But um, yeah, and people. So I'm, I, you know, I've been reading Stephen King for far too long. I think I read it for the first time when I was about twelve, and it completely scarred me for life. Um, you know, so people will always ask, what's your favourite Stephen King book? And I'm like, the man's rating 70, and they're all amazing. I don't have a favourite. Um, you know, so people have heard of the classics like Carrie, The Shining, It, The Stand, that kind of thing. But actually, 112263 is probably my favourite of his. Now, it's one of his more recent ones. Um, and for those who haven't heard of it, or the date doesn't trigger anything, um, 112263, Forgive the American parlance. It's the 22nd of November, 1963. It's the day that JFK was assassinated. Um, so the book Stephen King wrote is about a man who goes back in time to prevent the Kennedy assassination, um, you know, to see if it would change the world. You know, he's hoping that America doesn't invade Vietnam. A Martin Luther King doesn't get assassinated. You know, basically the world becomes a much happier place. Um, now, for those of you who read Stephen King, spoiler alert, it doesn't have a happy ending. Um, but really, the reason I said it makes me cry is because even though it's about ostensibly about a guy going back in time to stop the JFK assassination, it's not really. It's a love story. It's um, when he goes back in time, he meets a woman and he falls madly in love and they have this passionate affair. And, you know, I'm kind of underselling it by whipping through it like that because it is the most brilliant writing of a relationship I've ever read in my life. I've never cared so much about two people and the fate of their romantic lives than I have about the two characters in this book. Um, when I was doing my master's, actually, one of the things I wrote about in an essay is how all Stephen King books are actually love stories. You know, they are all horror books, yes, but take The Shining, for example. Yes, it's a horror story about haunting hotel, but actually... It's really about a father's love for his son and their difficult relationship. You know, if you look at Carrie, it's about a, a girl who's bullied until she uses her telekinetic powers to burn her town to the ground. But actually, it's really about Carrie's relationship with her mum, the love between her and her mum, and then her relationship with all the other students at school and the love they don't feel. Um, like I say, while 11.22.63 ostensibly is about preventing the JFK assassination, it's not. It's about this incredible love story between these two characters and I won't say any about why it makes me cry because it would be huge spoilers but it just I've read that it's a 700 page book that I must have read 10 times and I just love it love it to pieces no way I mean I now you say it, I hear that uh, yes all Stephen King books are love stories that's so interesting they are because I mean if you look at it like you know it's about this unknowable creature that wakes up every 28 years to consume children's fear to survive but it's not it's about the bond of love between these seven first kids and their adults the book is about their love and um, like the stand is a book about the end of the world and good versus evil but it's not it's about you know the the good side it's about the love they all feel for each other and that's what helps them in the end you know every Stephen yeah. king book is a book about love and that's what he writes about he just happens to use the vehicle of horror to do it 
That's so interesting. Okay, so moving on to your fifth book, which book have you chosen and why? So fifth book to, um, I say, I mentioned potential spoilers area. Here's where they come in. The fifth book I've chosen is American Psycho by the four and often mentioned Brace and Ellis. Um, so I've chosen this under the heading of a book everyone should read. Um, it's a difficult book to recommend because it just is so purely violent. Um, yeah. But it just is such a brilliant book. I mean, this is a book I've read 30, 40 times easily. Um, you know, I read it first when I was 16. I'm 36 now. So I've been reading it every year, every couple of years for the last 20 years. And I'm still discovering something new every time I read it. Um, you know, you mentioned, Phoebe, that you've seen the film. Um, and, you know, I think most people have seen the film because it's it's an excellent film in and of itself. It's not a great adaptation, but that's only because it's a book that's almost impossible to adapt. You know, Christian Bale does Patrick Bateman amazingly. Um, but the film, you know, so a lot, what a lot of people remember from the film is, you know, him banging on about Huey Lewis and the news or smashing um, Paul Allen, sorry, Paul Owen in the film, Paul Allen in the book in the back of the head with an axe while screaming, try and get a reservation of Dorothea now. Um, but yeah, it just... You know, the book, it being nearly 400 pages, it just goes into, so like the Dorsia thing, you know, it's not fully fleshed out in the film, but in the book it's, you know, because the book is all about status. Um, where Glamorama is, you know, about trying to be cool and popular in the 90s, um, American Psycho is about trying to fit in in the world of rich finance bros in the 80s. And the number one it restaurant in New York is Dorsia, and it's impossible to get a reservation, you know. Patrick Bateman rings up to get a reservation and they just laugh at him down the phone until he hangs up. So, you know, you can't really understand the pure anger in his voice as he screams about Dorsey while embedding an axe in someone's head unless you've read the book. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Yeah, and, I see that. There's a lot of context and, in the book. Absolutely. And and what the book and what the film is, that's right, is a lot of just, I mean, this is going to sound quite morbid, but... The book is genuinely hilarious. Like, my favourite scene in the book, because they feel more like scenes than chapters, is um, it's titled simply Killing Child at Zoo, um, which, you know, I'm, I can I can already feel the listeners judging me for finding this so hilarious. But basically, he goes to the zoo one day, and he's walking around it, and, you know, he's like, he says, he just says really casually, like, I walk past a sign, you know, I walk past a, an enclosure for, like, sea lions, and there's a sign saying please don't throw any coins in because they'll eat them and choke and die. So naturally I throw a handful of coins in. Um, <clears throat> but then he goes to this penguin exhibit and there's a child there. Um, and so because he, purely because he's bored, no reason because he's bored, he stabs this child um, and it takes a little while for people to notice. And then when they do, the mum starts screaming. He then pretends to be a doctor, pretends to try and help the child. The mum becomes hysterical, so he slaps her in the face. And then he just gets bored and walks off. And it's just, it's so ridiculous and absurd, but it's also just so horrible, but also hilarious. It just, I don't know, like I say, I'm, I'm so feeling you and everyone listening to this judging me, but it's just a hilariously, brilliantly, disgustingly, violently, amusingly entertaining book that I just love it. Um, but then... It's fiction, and I constantly have to remind myself as I'm reading some of the much more gruesome bits. It's only fiction, as um, as Brett Easton Ellis said himself. Um, I'm going to start banging on about Brett Ellis. I know too much about him now. <laughs> he actually, um, American Psycho actually got dropped by its publisher initially. You know, they paid him like half a million dollars advance, um, to publish this book. 
but a few excerpts got leaked and there was such a big backlash that his original publisher dropped him for fear of bad publicity. Um, luckily, another publisher picked him up and it got published. But um, he gave an interview for the 200th issue of the Parish Review um, and they talk about American Psycho and that. So it's, it's his most famous book. It's what everyone wants to talk about. Yeah, he, yeah. He got, about a month before it came out, he got a call from his agent and they're like, oh, we need you to sign this document. And he's like, oh, what is it? And he was like, oh, well, you we're getting so many death threats at the agency now that we need to, you to sign this document saying that we've told you and we've informed you and we've basically taken all the necessary steps. And he was like, oh, no worries, get death threats all the time. Um, yeah, <laughs> getting all these death threats, you know, saying, oh, you hate women and you hate gay people and you hate animals and you hate this. And he was saying that all this happened in the lead up and then the book came out and it immediately stopped because everyone read it and then suddenly remembered it was just a book. Interesting. I do read it because I I love all horrible stuff. You know, I love seeing the line in um, British Mouse's first book, um, Lesson Zero, where the main character, Claire, he's in an elevator heading to a horrible situation and he just says, I want to see the worst. And I'm like, I get that. I want to see the worst too. As long as it's fictional, I don't want to see. You know, I'm not I'm not big into true crime, doctor, or podcast or stuff because I need that remove of. It's fine. It's only fictional. None of these people exist. None of these events happen. Yes, yeah, so though I see that. So we've reached the end of the podcast. So we've got three minutes to do the quick fire questions. So, I well, one of them is what author do you have on auto buy? But I think we know the answer to that now. Yeah, I'll be British Nellis, Stephen King, they're definitely two. Um, A.M. Holmes, Miley Herbie, Nisha Dolan's second book's just come out, which I cannot wait to read. Um, Shelley Jackson, you know, I suppose people like Shelley Jackson, John Steinbock are less on autobiography because they are quite dead now, so not publishing as many books as they used to. But yeah, <laughs> I have fun. I can tell. So what is your favourite independent bookshop? Um, so there's a bookshop, so I am based in Leeds, there's a bookshop just around the corner from where I live called Truman Books, which I absolutely adore, it's where I did the launch event for Belonging a couple of weeks ago, um, run by a lovely woman called Amanda, who is just, she loves books, and it's great, because you can go in there, you know, no, I, you know, sometimes you go into a bookshop thinking, I'll buy this book, sometimes you go into the bookshop thinking, I've got 20 quid, let's see what happens, and Amanda is amazing when it comes to just, she will chat to you, she will talk you through it, she will basically find the book you didn't know you came in for, that's Truman Books in Leeds. Oh, I mean, she sounds great, and if listeners have enjoyed hearing from you, where can they find you on social media? Um, so you can find me on Twitter at r underscore wellborn. Um, I won't spell that, but you'll see it on the podcast. And Instagram at Robert Wellborn. They're the big two. I do have a TikTok, um, but I'm 36 now, so I don't understand TikTok. Um, I did my best. Um, I'm not quite 36, but my age does begin with a three, and I'm completely with you on that one. I feel like there's a point where everyone gets to a point where they stop understanding social media. And I think TikTok was the one for me where I'm like, yep, I'm officially old. I'm not doing any new social medias. Yeah, um, with you on that one. Totally. I recently, for some reason, started a sub stack as well. So you can find that. Just Google me and click past all the links for the Paralympic squirrel with the same name. And find, the one, find the links that are about some idiot who writes books. <laughs> well thank you so much Robert it's been a pleasure no absolutely thank you for having me I love it um, 
I'm one of the few authors that absolutely loves talking about myself. I love the sound of my own voice. So thank you for letting me come on and bang on about my book. Thank you.